What was that cold open topic you had said? Something about you'd recently had a run-in with a dissolute cobbler. Well, you think that I've just come here from being diddled by a dodgy cobbler. <laughs> diddled by a dodgy cobbler! Back in the alley, was it? I think it needs to sound a little bit more Dickensian than that. Back behind the haberdashers, was it? Oh, so you want me to put a little bit more spice on it, is what you're saying. Well, I'm very sorry for you, and they absolutely took advantage of you. Your shoe repair should not cost that much. How many times have you had these shoes repaired? Once. Okay. But I power through my boots. I know you do. You're very hard on your shoes. Let's say maybe they'll be really good, the boots, because they only lasted a year. Maybe they'll last two. Maybe we should put up a sign that says, one so day since, since yeah, last you. cobbling. Yeah. Maybe that could be a podcast segment. It is bold of you to assume this podcast will still be running by the time you need those shoes recalled. Well, hopefully. <laughs> That's the thing. That's what I want. I want it the shoes to outlive the podcast. That is absolutely not going to happen. Okay. All right. Well, let's see. We'll see. In the final episode, I'll... Uh... Update us. Yeah. Welcome to Save Me From My Shelf, a literature podcast where we take classic tomes off their pedestal to make you less anxious about reading them. Our jokes come from a place of love and for a specific teaching purpose. However, if you think that making fun of great literature, and maybe some mild swearing, is offensive, this might not be the podcast for you. Hello, you are listening to Save Me From My Shelf. Me old mucker over here is Daniel. Um, oh. You gonna burst into song over there? Or? <laughs> uh, maybe like whale song. <laughs> um, now what do they say in America? I don't know. This is your weekly challenge. Uh, an old buddy old pal over here is Abby. <laughs> We're too friendly on this show by mm. half. I don't care for this. No, no, yeah. Right, so let's read some letters, Daniel. Here's one from Tanya from Russia. I'll stop doing the voice now because we've had complaints. <laughs> Dear Abby and Daniel, thank you very much for your podcast. It brings me joy on a regular basis. Why are you overemphasizing things? I just thought that would be an interesting way of reading the letter. <laughs> <laughs> Whenever I first, when I, little, when I first come across a podcast, I recommend it to friends, acquaintances, and any unfortunate <laughs> passers-by. <laughs> good, good premise. Today, Yours is the only podcast on which I've received any feedback. Positive, naturally. I love that you're evangelical about podcasts. You're just assaulting people in the street. Yeah. Have you heard the good word, friend? Have you accepted? Have you heard the good banter? <laughs> <laughs> My question is, which of us have you accepted as your personal lord and savior? Are you an Abbey head or a Danielite? Well, have you heard of Manichaeism or whatever? Or, you know, Bielabog and Chernibog? This is not a polytheistic situation. Oh my god, and she's Russian as well. Bielabog and Chernibog. <laughs> Who's Bielabog? Who's Chernibog? Please write in and uh, tell us. <laughs> so, I don't want to ask you to read any book in particular, but I will tell you that I was recently retelling the plot of Turgenev's Mumu to my non-Russian fiancé. So you got a Russian fiancé and a non-Russian fiancé. <laughs> And just recounting the story out loud, I was reminded how soul-crushingly depressing it is. So, what I would like to humbly request is for you to apply your light, irreverent touch to some Russian greats so as to make it more accessible and for us to not seem quite so cheerless. Many thanks, Tanya. I'm looking forward to summarizing somebody... Throwing themselves under a train. I was going to say, just harvesting wheat. <laughs> Mowing that wheat. 
page after page. Same book though, so that's that's good. Well, thank you, Tanya. We will very possibly do more Russian lit at some point in the future. And here's another one. Hi, Daniel. This is just for me. We've got Daniel Head here. I've just started listening to your podcast, and I apologise if this has been recommended to you before, but A Handful of Dust by Evelyn War is a novel... I would say has no plot and a twist. Oh, right. Because uh, I asked for that quite early on, didn't I? Possibly even in the first episode for a book that has but, no plot but a twist. Uh, that's Yeah, I think it was in our Frankenstein episode. You said that was your ideal reading experience. Yeah. I have read it, and I think you're pretty bang on. I hope you enjoy. Kindest regards, Jenna. Thanks very much, Jenna. Well, I haven't read it, but I don't think you care, Jenna. I think that was a perfectly hateful way to begin an email, and I'm very upset. <laughs> I don't normally even come first, so seeing me come alone, <laughs> I was like, wow. Right, and this is a reminder, if you'd like to study with Daniel and I, we teach here at Aston University, we have an undergrad in English Lit, and we also teach an MA in English here, so please do sign up if you're interested. And don't forget to sign up for our Patreon. We will be doing our next book group in early January, and it looks like we will be reading Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow by Gabrielle Zevin. And thank you, all the current patrons. Yes, thank you very much. Largesse. <laughs> you should have seen the face Daniel Paul <laughs> That's a face, that, isn't it? Yeah, what a waste. What a waste. Um. <laughs> so, Daniel, what is our text today? New England. I'm familiar. Well, yeah. Home region of one of our esteemed co-hosts. Not me. Abby. You're old England. Yes, exactly. Uh, and it has a bit of a mixed reputation, an alloyed reputation, doesn't it, wouldn't you say? So on the one side, you've got wholesome small town life, a venerable tradition of learning and free thought, lush golden forests, and a sea swollen with cod. And it's got a literary tradition to match, hasn't it? Including Louisa May Alcott, the works of Henry David Thoreau, and of course, my favourite, Gilmore Girls. Um... There's another side, though. So, you know, stifling small-town paranoia, petty middle-class small-mindedness, creepy ancient woods, and a windswept, unforgiving coast. It also has a literary tradition to match, doesn't it? The works of H.P. Lovecraft, Stephen King, Scarlet Letter, all that stuff. And, of course, Family Guy. (laughs) Probably the most hateful thing to ever come out of New England, isn't it? We got the dark side, didn't we, all the way back in the first series uh, when we read Arthur Miller's play The Crucible, which is set in 17th century Massachusetts. With today's text, we're going to see if New England can be redeemed, if we're going to get the nice side of this city on the hill, this cradle of liberty. Will you redeem New England? So I'm sending out an appeal to heaven to Ethan Frome by Edith Wharton. Okay, so it should go without saying, we are about to spoil this book for you. The content, um, in this text there's, you know, accident and injury, you know, lasting trauma, gaslighting, possibly in a sort of Munchausen way, that's up for debate, there's disability, bad marriages, and technically incest? That's not incest. That's fine. I say that's fine. (laughs) Says the man with no cousins. But believe you me, if you had them, they'd be attractive and fair game. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Daniel, should we do some background? Yes. Edith Wharton was an early 20th century American novelist and short story writer. So she's most famous, I think, for her kind of sort of subtly satirical stories of 19th century New York high society. So the most famous of those being The House of Mirth, 1905, and The Age of Innocence, 1920. 
If you guys watched The Gilded Age, it's that kind of crap. Exactly, uh, probably. She was the first woman ever to win a Pulitzer Prize for... She got that for The Age of Innocence. So well done, Edith. <laughs> Little lady Edith. <laughs> so, yeah, Ethan Frome, 1911. It's a bit of an outsider on this front because it's about sort of small-town New England life. But I think we could probably find some parallels. She was born in 1862 in New York City, where she was part of the kind of, yeah, the Gilded Age sort of milieu, the haute bourgeoisie, and she had a very kind of privileged upper-middle-class life. She travelled around Europe, she went to balls, got loads of accomplishments, you know, the ones I mean, the kind of, the ladies' accomplishments. Like mine? No, like, the sort of good ones, like, you know... You almost said playing the piano, which I can do. Speaking French. Which I can do-ish. All right, you are accomplished then. Well done. She came out. <gasps> no, in the old-fashioned sense. Oh. Uh, you know, like a debutante. In, so, yeah, no champagne corks here, please. In the 1880s, and soon after married Boston Brahmin Teddy Wharton. You know, that all went very well initially. They were doing up houses and other rich people things. I don't know. I picture him wearing a lot of chains across his waistcoat. Do you? I imagine him more kind of like Tweedy plus fours and kind of going like... Oh, the ponies in the garage. <laughs> Regardless, he simply must have a big Edwardian bristly mustache. I will accept nothing less. Well, he he came down with a bad bout of depression. Maybe something happened to his mustache, is what I'm wondering. He needs a bigger mustache to hide his depression under. That's what you do with a big mustache. You sweep all of your shortcomings oh, right, or yeah. problems underneath like it. Friedrich Nietzsche. That's how you become <laughs> a Ubermensch, isn't it? So... As a result of this depression, their relationship started to suffer. They divorced in 1902, and Edith Wharton moved to France, and she kind of just pretty much lived the rest of her life in France, becoming a kind of full-time writer, intellectual, socialite type, befriended loads of famous authors, including Joseph Conrad, André Gide, Jean Cocteau, and fellow expat, Henry James. Also fellow alumnus of Save Me From My Shelf. It's nice to see them all back together. Her works are in that tradition of 19th century realism, and so therefore have this kind of critical ironic tone and they tend to attack sort of repressive social norms and um, particularly gender norms from late 19th century society i mean I, I don't know about you but i feel like the works feel a little bit kind of like hangovers of the 19th century and i suppose 1911 is not that far off but they feel like classic realist novels rather than kind of early 20th century works did you come up with that phrase here 19th century hangovers i don't know <laughs> because it it feels I know what you mean hangover in a sort of like more stylistic sense. stylistic sense but also but it it does feel like a a drunken hangover from the 19th century in that it's you know oh it's it's quite bleak now that realist style there's something that's quite queasy inducing there's something about the way she writes that oh there's a kind of jadedness isn't there right shall we get to the text then and you can you can finally see how I was brought up yeah, you can see am, my childhood. I, I am feeling like I'm learning a bit. From <laughs> we open with this unnamed narrator, who's this person from the small New England town of Starkfield. And this person, I'm going to assume it's a it's a man. It feels like it probably would be based on the sort of social norms of the time, but it could potentially be a woman. We don't know. Lady. So... This guy's heard, you know, he's heard this here story over the years, bit by bit, from various people. It's about this real local legend, this fellow named Ethan Frome, and he lives kind of over yonder. Quote, he was the most striking figure in Starkfield, though he was but the ruin of a man. 
with the careless, powerful look, in spite of a lameness checking each step like the jerk of a chain. There was something bleak and unapproachable in his face, and he was so stiffened and grizzled that I took him for an old man, and I was surprised to hear that he was not more than 52. Oh, so the narrator's a bit like, hmm, he's pale and interesting. Yes, Daddy. Is this a queer reading? Because, man, I'm getting vibes between the two of them. That's not... Their little sleigh rides together, eventually. Well, that's not the impression I got, but maybe. Oh, this narrator's determined to crack open his, you know, steely Frame. shell. Yeah. <laughs> you don't you don't buy that queer reading at all? Well, I didn't. So, apparently, 24 years ago, when Ethan was only 28, he had some sort of horrible accident, bad enough to have killed a lesser mortal. And our narrator doesn't really know what happened. No, nobody kind of really knows, like, the exact specifics of it. Nowadays, Ethan only ever leaves the house to go to the post office, and all he ever picks up there are various quack medicines and tonics for his hypochondriac wife, Xena. Xenobia, isn't it? That's such a cool name. Uh, not worry, princess. That's got a Z, not an X. <laughs> and the locals gossip about how Ethan, he's basically going to be trapped in his hometown for the rest of his days. You know, it's, it's really sad. When he was a young man, he had stayed on to care for his ailing father till he died. Then Ethan stayed on to care for his ailing mother till she died. Then he stayed on with his sickly wife. And now, well, after the accident, no getting out of Massachusetts, I'm afraid. Now, as a, as a Vermonter, and we have all of our petty grudges against other states, you know, as does everywhere, I will refrain from speaking ill of Massachusetts, except to say that the best thing about it is that it's not New Hampshire. Wow. Okay. Um, there's all that talk also about how Frome's family have all been kind of trapped in their own way over the years, isn't there? Which is a bit sad. He's kind of yeah. the latest in a long generation of thwarted yeah forms. this is man this is a cutting to the heart of a lot of people i knew growing up so this this book is actually a little bit difficult for me like right. personally it is a sad read okay our unnamed narrator eventually finds himself in need of a ride and everybody says oh why don't you ask ethan uh, he'd be happy to earn a bit of extra cash you know it's a bit like uber or something isn't it <laughs> you know? Frome Farm has always turned a very poor crop, and Ethan's had a bit of a hard time making ends meet, hence why he'd be happy to give this lift. So the narrator agrees, and Ethan starts commuting the guy to and from work in his sleigh. The trips, they're a little bit awkward, aren't they? At least at first, yeah. Yeah, silent and tense. Quote, He seemed a part of the mute melancholy landscape, an incarnation of its frozen woe. There was nothing unfriendly in his silence. I simply felt that he lived in a depth of moral isolation too remote for casual access. Oh my god, Ethan would make a therapist so rich. They'd take one look at him and be like, that right there is a jet ski friend. He would be impervious, I think, to that sort of thing. Oh, he's desperate to talk. He's desperate to have his hard shell cracked open so you can get to the gooey center. My Ethan would never do that. I'll get a different <laughs> Ethan. My Ethan would... Uh, steal it out really well what's the next sentence daniel very slowly and over time ethan opens up to the narrator there you go okay and maybe maybe they fall in love a little bit okay brushes his knee a few times so once he borrows a book another time they have to take a detour and frome shows the narrator his farm and it's this kind of ugly hopeless looking place it sounds like the sort of starter house you build in the sims before you know what you're doing you know what i used to do um <laughs> I would not even build a house. I'd just put the furniture on the lawn. Ooh, you're twisted. Because you don't actually need... They don't care about privacy or shelter, do they? The Sims. So, 
One time, they're caught in a snowstorm, and Frome invites the narrators to stay with him until it's safe to travel. And it's this night that the narrator finally gets a little bit of a real insight into the character of one Mr. Ethan Frome. Or does the narrator get insight into Frome's character? Because then the weirdest thing happens structurally. We go from this unnamed first-person narrator to a third-person narrator, and we go back in time looking at Ethan before the accident. Everything's all going backwards. It seems like... (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, this is a really weird framing device because the bulk of the book, everything that we are about to see, our first-person narrator does not see this, so he doesn't actually learn any of this. Okay, so we go back, and now Ethan is this young thwarted man and he had brief- what, 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 a, what a difference an old thwarted man <laughs> <laughs> carry on sorry so he had briefly been at a technical college nearby and he had had a real interest in the sciences and, and really wanted to pursue this but his family responsibilities kept him from pursuing his academic passions so we cut to Ethan walking really far late on a cold winter night and I didn't actually know that you could get a melancholy case of the zoomies but here we are so as Ethan walks he expects to see sledders sort of laughing it up on a nearby hill because this is a favorite pastime for the the young jolly lively people in the winter but not tonight Tonight's all quiet because everyone is at a nearby dance instead. So Ethan sneaks up to the building where the dance is and he sort of peers through the windows like a pervert. You know, everyone there, they're doing a conga line, they're doing the Macarena. It's all very wholesome. Ethan starts watching one girl dancing in particular, but she's dancing with some strapping young he beast. Quote <laughs> Frome's heart was beating fast. He had been straining for a glimpse of the dark head under the cherry-colored scarf. The leader of the reel, who looked as if he had Irish blood in his veins, danced well, and his partner, the girl, caught his fire. Ethan is livid with jealousy. My God, will this depraved bacchanalia never end? But who's the girl, we wonder? Is this his wife, Zena, that we've heard about before their marriage, before her illness? No. At this point in time, Ethan's already married to Zena. This girl is Zena's cousin, Mattie Silver. Mattie? She's come to Starkfield to help take care of her invalid cousin, Zena Zenobia. And we never find out what's wrong with Zena. We only know that she claims to have no health whatsoever, and yet death cannot touch her. Some people might say she's taking the piss. Not me, I'm very sympathetic. There is a Munchausen's reading of Xena, or a sort of delusional reading of Xena. Yeah, yeah, but so but we never know, and that that that'll be up for debate. We'll talk about that in the uh, analysis. So they don't pay Matty, but they give her bed and board, and she's allowed to go on the odd night out in town, so she doesn't feel too disappointed by moving to the Frome's isolated farm. But it's Ethan's habit to walk Matty home from these um, nights out afterwards, so she's not alone late at night. Because we don't want her to end up in, like, a true detective murder plotline, right? No, that would make a much more exciting book, though. <laughs> it was initially a chore for Ethan to have to go out at midnight in the cold on some long walk. But lately, he's uh, sort of found himself wishing that there could be a party every night because he just, you know, he wants to spend some time alone with Matty. She's been there a year, and she makes him feel alive again. You know, she talks about all of the 
stem things that he <laughs> likes to talk about. I, I don't know what cathodes. Quarks, quarks. They didn't know about quarks back then, did they? Didn't know about cathodes. Uh, Daniel, I tapped the f- out of science in the 10th grade. Why would I yeah, know but you know this? about history of science, don't you? <laughs> you got a book out about it, haven't you? <laughs> this is when we find out I'm a fraud. Yeah, A well, living fraud. You know, he can um, t- take in the walk, stop to smell the roses. She doesn't mind. It's not like that naggy, naggy Xena. But, you know, he's also like, what would a pretty girl see in a grump like me? Does she like any of these other guys in town? Is my wife Xena getting jealous? These are all sorts of questions that are coming up get therapy well, i'm gonna right. bang some pots and pans in front of your face ethan get therapy yeah in fairness Zena has started complaining a bit about matty's housework and also it is true that she's not very good at doing houseworky things she's a, she's a manic pixie dream girl really isn't she she's young and dreamy she's not really a manic pixie dream she's girl. a very sane unpixie like normal girl she's a sane troll boy well, yeah, I suppose you're right, yeah. No, she's your pretty average 20-year-old, I would think. Well, maybe in Ethan's head she is. I'll give you that for Ethan. So, Ethan, to sort of help Matty out, he's taken to doing some of Matty's womanly chores, like scrubbing the floor and churning the butter, despite him already having this incredibly heavy workload. But, uh... Zena walked in on him one day at the butter churn, and he's like, it's not what it looks like! Sorry, so he's just using the butter churn by himself? Yeah, but that's a woman's thing. I tell you what, that's something from right ball ache. Time to make your own butter. Zena, she started making digs about how Matty's going to get married one day, and isn't it funny that Ethan started shaving every morning? Hmm. Ethan holds his cards pretty close to his chest, but Zena is more observant than she lets on. Ethan finishes his musing, and he focuses on the party. Everyone's leaving, and Dennis Edie, the creep that Maddie was dancing with, well, he tries to pick up Maddie in his sled and drive her home. Hey, baby. (laughs) (laughs) He's got his arm on the... (laughs) Ethan Frame, he drives his sled like this. Hands at ten and two. Obviously, Dennis rolls up like a prime asshole. Arm hanging off the side. You like what you see? My dad let me take the Stang out. (laughs) But in this case, it literally is a Mustang horse. So Dennis clearly likes Maddie. And Ethan, who's kind of watching like from the bushes, basically, he's furious. He's ready to grab the nearest bike chain and beat this guy's ass for, well, what would feel like an eternity. But in reality, it would be a mere two and a half hours. Probably would have been one of the first bike chains in the 1880s, (laughs) wouldn't it? Wow. Maddie says no to Dennis, and it's clear she's waiting for Ethan. (laughs) Ethan finally shows himself, and Maddie seems happy to see him. They link arms. They begin to walk home. And he even offers to take her into town some night and let her go sledding with all the other young folk, if she'd like. Oh, she would very much like it. It's so thrilling. Last time... When they went sledding, a group of them just barely missed the giant elm at the bottom of the hill. They surely would have all been killed. Foreshadowing horn here. Chekhov's elm. So they get home, and Ethan discovers that Zena has locked them out of the house. And Zena gets up, and she answers the door with her rollers in her hair like Andy Cap's wife. And, guys, Zena is a bummer she goes on about how she thought she might as well wait up for them because she was left in so much pain while maddie was out (laughs) enjoying herself that she couldn't sleep anyway so the next day ethan goes out to do a bit of hard labor and have a good old think hey xena stays in bed 
taking a medicine. Is, is it implied that she's drinking opium? I kind of, I, I feel like that was the subtext there. She's kind of getting high all day. The opiates crisis, isn't it? <laughs> this is, well, not, but this is the beginning. She's sort of just lying there with a flannel on her face and... Yeah, just full goblin mode. Okay, so here's my problem with Xena. If you're going to act like a high-maintenance woman, you need to dress like a high-maintenance woman. None of your Quaker bullshit. I'm not having this. What would you want then? What's your dream Xena looking like? Xena with an X. Bronze breastplate. Exactly. So, we get a bit more backstory about uh, Matty. Batty old Matty. (laughs) So her pa had been... Pa? Her dad had been (laughs) one of the Connecticut Hill folk. Oh, is that, oh, I want the Connecticut Hill Folk. Oh, different. Type. I think you'll find that the Connecticut Hill Folk are some of the most exclusive Hill Folk in the whole of the Americas. <laughs> is that what they're like? So, yeah, he was one of the Connecticut Hill Folk. He married a townie. He seemingly made it rich. But then when he died, everyone found out that he'd been in debt. He'd done some embezzlement, something like that. The news just killed Matty's mother. Without a penny to her name, the formerly rich Connecticut girl, Matty, got shipped off to the Fromes. I do like that the Fromes are like, we'll take her in. Adopt, don't shop. That was a joke that's headed straight for the cutting room floor. Cool. (laughs) So anyway, when he gets in from his chores, Ethan discovers that Xena's up and dressed. Very unusual. She's normally just rolling around naked, isn't she? (laughs) Um, So weird still, she's packed up her suitcase. Hmm, what's going on here then? Well, I'll tell you what. Her shooting pains are so bad that she's going on one of her famous trips to the city to try some new doctor's miracle cure. Ethan's a little bit relieved that the uh, the old trouble and strife will be gone, but he's also in absolute dread of the bills that she tends to rack up that they can't afford to pay. So yeah, we get the sense that a lot of their financial hardship is her, you know, basically shopping at Goop. Yes, it is a bit like that, isn't it? Last time she did this, she came home with a giant electric battery (laughs) that cost $20. Now, do we want to know how much $20 was in what I'm estimating to be 1887? (gasps) Do you have a measuring Um, worth? Well, yes, I I do have (laughs) I do have a measuring worth. (laughs) (laughs) It's been so long. If you want to compare the value of a $20 commodity in 1887, there are three choices. The relative real price, so that's in relation to the sort of standardized basket of goods, of that commodity is $635. It's quite a lot, isn't it? The labor value of that commodity is $3,900, and that's only unskilled wages. Skilled wages, $5,520. The income value of that commodity, $235. I can't remember what that one means. Economic (laughs) share of that commodity, $38,000. So that's the amount of kind of sway $20 would give you in the Massachusetts 1880s economy. So she basically spends what, yeah, would be like 38 grand on a battery to, what, jumpstart her motor? Well... But she can't figure out how to use the battery, so it just sits there like a panini press that we've all got in the back of our cupboards. Cathodes. Ethan would probably get something out of that, wouldn't he? So, I don't know what he's minding about. If anyways, they're the ideal couple, aren't they? She buys in all this crack medicine, then he can play with it. (laughs) For his sort of stem tinkering... So Ethan doesn't want to waste any time driving his shitty wife to the train station when he could be spending that time with Matty. We'll have one of the farmhands take you. Zena's like, I don't give a crap that you're not driving me. I don't care. She's too busy drinking the rest of a tonic that she says, you know, frankly, never did her an ounce of good. I always do stuff like that. Like, oh, Might as well finish don't it. Don't like this, but I'll have it. <laughs> 
And then she gives the big medicine jar to Matty and says, you, you know, you should use it for pickles if you can ever get the medicine taste out. And I wonder, Daniel, is this pickle trope, which is going to come back up again, mm. is this a bit of a shit conceptual metaphor? Oh, we're in a real pickle. Or is it the fact that Ethan is basically preserved? Mm, I was kind of thinking more of that one. So, yeah, what are these pickles? Well, we'll save that, maybe. We can talk about the pickles later when the actual, this, when Picklegate arises in, <laughs> in earnest. <laughs> this is the first time the house has felt like a home since Ethan was a child. Ooh. Zena's gone, and he thinks a little bit about... His loneliness. He's very alienated. And before Matty came, life at home was just Xena constantly watching and judging him. And, you know, she was sort of constantly silent. Even in his parents' illness, they had lost the power of speech. So he, you know, well, I suppose you can talk to them, but they wouldn't talk back, would they? <laughs> and, he, you know, he couldn't talk about all of his beloved cathodes and anodes and stem things. So Xena, she was a cousin of his. And that's how, you know, they first met. She came to help tend to his ailing parents while he could work on the farm. He was just so relieved to have somebody to talk to again. He dreaded being alone so much when his parents died that he married her. And I think he also felt like he kind of owed her for having um, nursed his parents. So that's, that's another reason why he married her. Yeah, I mean, I could get you, you know, a box of chocolates as a thank you, or we could get married, yeah. Hey, so much of human relationships are about guilt. I think that's fine. <laughs> this book is hitting us on deep levels. After they get married, Xena very quickly changed, and it's now much worse being married to her than it was being alone but not tonight turn on the smooth jazz <laughs> turn down the lights it's just gonna be dinner conversation a light dinner with matty god if they cracked open a bottle of wine that might kill him that yeah. is entirely too much pleasure for one maybe a bit of barley wine do they have that in New England? It seems like just these rural homesteads go open the barley wine. Ethan thinks a little bit back, more back to his and Zena's early marriage. He wanted to keep up with his education because he had ambitions to be an engineer and was desperate to move to the city. There weren't many takers to buy the farm, however, and he very kind of slowly realised that while they were waiting to sell it, Zena, she's kind of only really comfortable here in Starkfield where she grew up and that she would never move to support his career even though she also hates the town. So you can't win, can you? <laughs> Quote, she would have suffered a complete loss of identity. It's probably a good thing in her case, since her identity is so um, odious. <laughs> See, I grew up with people like this, and this is why I know there are a lot of Xena apologists out there, a lot of people who think Ethan's a really horrible person. I hate her, and I hate her primarily because of this moment. I find this completely I unforgivable. Like they're all sympathetic, but also all annoying. That's the kind of vibe I'm getting. But I'm a very, I'm like a sort of Christ-like figure. <laughs> I just forgive everyone. I'll work through that on my other podcast. Okay, yeah, please do. Anyway, enough of that. Ethan gets home and he sees Maddie's light on in the upstairs window. And he wonders, you know, this is such a sad little hope. He's like, maybe, maybe she's fixing herself up for dinner. And he remembers with shame the night that Maddie first arrived with them. She had wanted to make a good impression, so she brushed her hair and put a ribbon around her neck for dinner. And Zena just sarcastically kind of smirked at her the whole night. This is beyond the whole, like, New England cliche of, you know, I'm from stern Puritan stock and pleasure is for Italians. This is a proper, like, Zena problem. I hate Zena. Her soul is wormwood that is such a nasty little moment 
We like to look scruffy in this house, thank you very much. <laughs> there was a feeling of entrapment or something. Yeah, like he's constantly going back in time and revisiting and then, oh, but, but back to my point, back to my business of the day. And it's a bit like Groundhog Day. <laughs> well, I, I mean, it is in that you can see he's, he's not quite wondering where has it all gone wrong, but there is that sort of like psychoanalytical, like worrying mm. over the past constantly, especially when you have nobody to talk to. He's fixating, he's ruminating. Mm. But then but the fact that his life is so repetitive. Yes. And then that. speaking of repetition, he tries the front door and finds that it's locked. Oh, God, it's just like last night, you know, when Xena locked the door on us. And he's like, well, I suppose it's natural enough for Matty to lock the front door. You know, she's a woman home alone, you know, out in the wilderness. So Matty... Well, you think a bear might break in? No, but I'm... Oh, oh you mean because you're all alone, you won't, people won't hear the screams? Exactly. Okay, right, from oh. the bear. <laughs> you are so clearly not a true crime person. So Maddie comes to the front door, like Xena, with a lamp. And, you know, again, you know, Ethan's a little startled by the similarities to the previous night. But he's also startled by the contrast. Maddie looks lively and happy to see him. And God, she's even set the table nicely. Now, what are they having for dinner? <laughs> they are having donuts, stewed blueberries, and pickles. Mmm. Girl dinner? First of all, remind me what girl dinner is. It's like a, an adult lunchable. It's where you have little picky bits for dinner. How's that girl dinner? Little that's just, just like that's just a thing, isn't it? You're not chronically online. That's why you don't know the phrase girl dinner. But that's the thing people do anyway. Beside that, this yeah. is not a normal meal, is it? Yeah. What? Or was it back then? I don't know. Why are they eating like a dieting mother of three from 1978? This sounds like a meal that my grandmother, who is not a good cook, would make on her most unhinged day. What is the worst thing your grandmothers have ever made? Your grandmothers, Beryl and Phyllis, I'm guessing their names are. What's the worst thing? Ooh, roast dinners. And are their names Beryl and Phyllis? Please tell me I was right and at least one of them. They're both called Beryl and Phyllis. Wow. One's called Phyllis Beryl, double Beryl, and the other's called Beryl Phyllis, no hyphen. How unusual. I know, it's, what a coincidence. <laughs> yeah. What, again, the back to the pickles. What are the pickles? Are they savory pickles or are they sweet pickles? Because... Well, you wouldn't want a donut of Branston pickle, would you? But you you do that with things. Um, you have, like, a super sweet thing, and then you cut it with pickles. So I'm going to teach you a little something. Go on. Do you know what sugar on snow is? No. That is when you go to a sugar house, and they have fresh, hot maple... S you don't know what a sugar house is. Yeah. Okay, let's, okay, let's back up. That is a house where they make maple syrup. You right. take in the, the sap. Treehouse. It's not really a treehouse. It's a, usually a log cabin. Oh, you tap the sap, you take it to the sugar house. Exactly. They boil it. Yeah. Boils down. When you have the fresh, hot maple syrup, you take it out. This, this is going to sound very unhinged, but you get a big, like, horse trough full of snow. You drizzle it on there and sort of candies. You make basically fresh candy out of it. Because right. it, it, the hot, it, it chills then instantly and it turns sort of like into a kind of chewy thing but then because it's so sweet you have it with a pickle like a savory pickle oh right so you're fully au fait with this sort of behavior not this uh, donuts stewed blueberries and pickles is a bit weird are they ring donuts or what that's the other thing i'm wondering oh probably i'm imagining just a sort of beignet we don't really have that okay it's probably like an apple cider donut i'm guessing you don't know what that yeah. is either oh yeah. my goodness well, i i need to take you with me to a, the states what a rich culture new england Back to this dinner. 
The big thing, though, is that Matty is using Xena's special red glass pickle dish, which is never for use, <laughs> only display. And by the way, my grandmother has a china hutch like this with is, pickle Is this dishes. all just an excuse for you to vent? I said I was going to work through this on my other podcast, yeah, but I'm getting a lot this of is the other podcast. Of old country venting. Just the whole culture is just pickle crazy, <laughs> isn't it? That's the funny thing about this book. I suppose it's a bit... You know how much you do about nothing, the nothing is the vagina. Uh, yes, I get the pun, yes. This is a bit like that, isn't it? Oh, you're Ev- saying find every- the fallacy. Yeah, everybody's Everyone's crazy for pickles, weird. but they're all skirting around the issue. But Ethan is really touched by this pickle dish, um, you know, because the table never looks nice. You know, nobody's ever happy to see him. Normally they keep the pickles in a, what, a stained <laughs> <laughs> tin cup. And Ethan thinks that he was, quote, suffocated with the sense of well-being, which is a devastating sentence. But surely this can't all be for me, he thinks. Oh, I'm just miserable old Ethan. I'll climb down off the cross, buddy. Mm, We need the wood. Ethan does spend a lot of time flagellating himself in this, like a character on a bad TV show about the medieval era. He is pathetic, yeah. This pickle jar thing is just... You're fixated on Well, this. I'm getting... I saw a lot of sort of like Wuthering Heights parallels. Mm. And this is making me think of that terrine full of applesauce. This pickle dish, much like the terrine of applesauce, is really the fulcrum upon which this story turns. I think so, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I'm not being... Yeah. It sounds no, like no, I'm being yeah. arsy about it, but I'm... I'm just thinking if, I'm, if I can find one other piece of crockery that's... I've got an essay. I've got an article. <laughs> crockery readings. Crockery, crockery reading! reading. <laughs> yeah, put the smash in. <laughs> Ethan and Matty, they're very bashful Aww. over the dinner, aren't they? You know, like the, the dwarf that was bashful? Um, <laughs> Hugh Grant. Imagine those two, bashful and Hugh Grant, trying to have tea together. It'd be a bit like that. And it's made all the worse when they both reach for the milk jug at the same time and end up touching hands. Oh, yes, the erotic milk jug. They're going to flip this table over in a passion and ravage each other on the credenza. That shaker furniture isn't going to know what hit it. It wasn't designed for these purposes, <laughs> is it? So <laughs> the moment is soon broken, however, when the cat turns up, sits in Xena's chair. The cat's a bit of an Edgar Allan Poe moment, isn't it? <laughs> the, the kind of the presence of the cat as this sort of guilt thing. Then it leaps on the table and knocks Xena's precious pickle dish on the floor. I mean, it's, that's literally a boner killer. If we're doing the whole pickle as very thinly veiled metaphor for, you know, phallic symbol here, it kills the mood, we'll say. Yeah. Xena, she's going to be, well, pretty cross. Matty's in a pickle is the, <laughs> is the conclusion there. Ethan's like, we can just blame the cat. Like when you say blame the dog, you know, um, that's a fart joke. Um, I know, I was ignoring it. Okay. But Matty's like, oh no, that won't work. We can't blame the cat because the dish was hidden at the back of the china hutch. The cat couldn't have accessed that hutch. It doesn't make sense. Cats don't have thumbs. No. They don't. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So Ethan's like, oh, don't worry, love. I'll find another just like it. Matty's like, but you just can't. You can't get a new one. It was one of your wedding presents years ago. From does... Which I think is what we'd all do in this situation. He does the classic sort of kid gambit, doesn't he? He puts it back in the cupboard, lines up all the pieces so it doesn't look broken, and he just prays that Xena will never go and, you know, check up on it. So Well, she's not used it so far. Well, exactly. I think, you know, it's a sort of foolproof, I would say. (laughs) (laughs) Having initially been a a sort of boner killer, 
this is this sort of conspiracy has sort of um bonded the two and ethan's got a lot of adrenaline i'm james f***ing bond after dinner ethan and maddie sit in front of the fire and ethan even asks maddie to come sit in xena's chair but much like when maddie answered the locked door ethan is almost immediately creeped out by you know the slight family resemblance between maddie and xena Eventually, they start talking, and Ethan says, again, you know, we can go sledding tomorrow night, but only if it's not too dark out. You wouldn't want to run into Chekhov's elm tree accidentally in the dark, would you? Why, that'd plum kill ya. <laughs> again, foreshadowing Horn. He also gossips about how he saw this young couple they know kissing in town and is, is this his dirty talk i guess mm, maybe is he yeah, making his move sort of, um, power of suggestion type thing isn't there yeah this feels like a very special corner of farmer pornography so Maddie- a very special corner <laughs> sounds like it could be its own it's a very special corner of farmer <laughs> Maddie gets really bashful with this you know slightly scandalous romantic talk and she's but- from hill folk and ain't nothing off limits up there. Well, that's what I'm thinking. Believe yeah, you but, me. Yeah. So something kind of comes over Ethan when he sees that his hand has, you know, slightly brushed up against the end of Maddie's sewing, and he picks up a corner of her work and he kisses it. Mm, just a uh, Fifty Shades of Beige happening before <laughs> our eyes. So that that kind of I think spooks Maddie a little bit. So she gets up, she closes the house up for the night, and goes to bed. Are you suggesting that the sight of your cousin boss kissing your embroidery embroidery would spook you yes i think so yeah spooked i I don't really get what was going on here i think it's just there's nothing going on he's just kissing some embroidery (laughs) is there more to this i think it's just a tender moment if that's the closest he can sort Mm. of get to her is the thing she's sewing it's like in lolita in lolita that bit where she sort of like just puts her legs on his lap and i was like what's going on here this (laughs) felt a bit like that again yeah So Ethan's super depressed by this, his one magical night of comfort and romance, and he's barely so much as touched her hand. I mean, he was hoping to see at least a little ankle. Come on. Come on, love. Flash is some fetlock. What's what's fetlock? Is that above the hoof? Yeah, I think that's the ankle, isn't it? Yeah, you're right. It's been a bit of a disappointing evening. Never mind Ethan wakes up in a good mood because he's seen how pleasant life could be with someone who actually wants to make things comfortable. I kind of admire Xena for so religiously putting pine cones on chairs and things. Oh, yes, my little grey peacock. Remind us all of how allergic to luxury you are. Yeah, I just think that's, that's cool, isn't it? It's funny to be like that. It's Go- funny till you have to live like that day in and day out. Well, not if you find it funny. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he hates that this was the only night with Matty, and he dreads having to pick up Xena later. Because, you know, first of all, he has a ton of farm work to do. The weather's it's awful. Really bad weather. And he also has to get some glue for this damn pickled dish <laughs> to fix it. So. It's a phrase that came naturally to you. He has a stressful afternoon. He's managed to find a bit of glue somewhere. From the glue depository. <laughs> He, well, what happened to Ethan's horse? Oh, that would be so sad if he... Uh, oh. He gets home. He's like, oh, I've got the glue. And she's like, hey, Zena's home early. She's in her room. You know, so pipe down about that glue. All right. It could be for anything, couldn't it? I'd be like, oh, it's an innocent thing. Um, model aeroplane or something. They didn't have aeroplane. It's too early for aeroplanes. That's what... 
the Wright brothers might have been. They, oh yeah, all that. They yeah. might be just getting started. Yeah. Ethan realizes that he'll have to stay up all night and wait for her to be asleep so he can mend the dish without her realizing. He and Matty, they both feel conspiratorial and guilty. Oh, they are gonna bang like jackhammers later. This is the sort of thing that bonds people. Like a glue. <laughs> Who knew a little bit of Elmer's could be so erotic? That brand of glue. Yes. So, dinner time rolls around. And it's just him and Maddie, and a bowl of donuts again. I have never heard of anyone going on an inflammatory diet before. <laughs> Maddie, please feed this man some protein. He's doing hard labor every day. So Ethan goes to wake Xena for dinner, but he discovers that she's actually avoiding sleep like she owes it money. Instead, she's been creepily sitting in their bedroom, looking out the window, and she's still in her traveling clothes hours after arrival. That's weird. She's a weird woman. She's like, I'm not eating dinner tonight. Then, I mean, she just is immediately back on her bullshit. The doctor also said that I should have a proper hired girl so I don't have to lift a finger anymore. And guess what, dummy? I've already hired one. Now, Ethan, I think, is quite rightly enraged here we do not have money to pay for a servant and couldn't you have at least talked to me first before getting me into debt Zena wails about how you know she lost her health while caring for ethan's mother and ethan kind of does a double take and he's like uh lady i think james mcneil whistler would be real impressed with that broad brush you're painting with <laughs> what the hell do you mean you lost your health caring for my mother you were fine for years after and Zena's like, oh, I'm sorry, Ethan, you're right. I don't want to be part of the problem. I want to be the whole problem. I'm not sorry at all. I insist that we have this new girl, even if it gets you in debt. And it'll be the death of me to go on slaving, as I have done. You know, he tries to push back, and finally she says, quote, Just send me to the almshouse. I bet there have been plenty of fromes there before. And I, I wrote, I mean, this is a, the common Twitter phrase, the lion, the witch, and the audacity of this bitch. It's a low blow. I like the James McNeil Whistler jokes, but there aren't many James McNeil Whistler jokes out there. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, that by default is one of the best. It's just for you. Thank you. Dina continues, well, at the very least, we don't have to worry about Maddie's room and board. I've decided to get rid of her. Ethan's horrified that Zena would put her own family on the street, but Zena doesn't care. She thinks Maddie's a leech. She's useless. And besides, there's already talk around town about a pretty girl like Maddie being in their house. Maybe uh, some people have noticed that Ethan and Maddie have a bit of a situationship going on. Anyway, Maddie needs to get gone by tomorrow. I have sure notice. I mean, yeah, Maddie should talk to her ombudsman. Find Town out what, selectman, that's what they have in New England, isn't it? Find out what the local tenancy laws are. I think this, this is an informal arrangement, though, isn't it? Depends how long you've been domiciled there. Are you getting your post there? You might be legally domiciled. Oh, yeah. This is, <laughs> this is Tenancy Corner with Abby it's and important. Daniel. It's important, isn't it? Right in, if you're in a weird landlord situation... I'm sure people are. I would like to hear that if people do have funny landlord situations. We are lawyers. After that bombshell, Ethan goes down to dinner alone. He's devastated. He breaks the news to Matty. Matty, she's just like those donuts. She's just very sweet and is like, 
and sad, a bit like a sad donut. <laughs> She's like, I bet I could find work in the city. Is Maddie the donut and Zena the sour pickle? Oh my god! And Ethan, Steve Blueberry. So Ethan's like, no, Zena can't always have her way. What are you gonna do in the city? You know, you won't last a minute. I'm gonna demand that you stay, Matty. They're sort of about to have a moment, and then Zena comes in, you know, Madam Flockery herself, and says, oh, actually, I'm well enough to come down after all, and the doctor says I should eat loads, so I'm gonna come and have some dinner after all. Zena is a bit arsy during the meal. She's just always adjusting her false teeth, just kind of just generally being difficult. She talks about people she knows who have diarrhea. <laughs> she keeps snidely looking at Matty and smiling. And, she, you know, the assumption is that she thinks that Matty, she doesn't even know she's going to be out on the street tomorrow. My God, what would Emily Post have to say about this dinner? Zena, girl, be careful. This is how true crime starts. Your ass is about to get Mrs. Crippened and... pushing her luck a bit, isn't she? Nobody will mourn her. Oh. Ethan's just really disgusted. He can't eat. Probably just his, you know, hyperglycemia, isn't it? (laughs) That's probably why he's disgusted. You know, Zena, she's eating well, but then she starts insulting Matty's cooking, saying that her food makes her sick. She's then like, oh, I'm just going to go and get my special medicine, and I keep that in a special secret hidden place. She comes back before long, and... Zena, I don't mean to tell you, is in a fury. Who, who among you has broken my pickle dish? The thing I loved most of all in all... Christendom. Darrell, Islam, all of it. Just the whole thing. I locked up my secret medicines in the china hut with it. So Ethan says, oh, well, the cat did it. And she's like, well, how did the cat get in the china touch, moron? And he's like, oh, well, it was chasing mice. Chasing uh, mice in a locked china hutch? Yeah, it's one of the first locked room mysteries, isn't it? <laughs> um, it goes there, it turns into like a very tense murder mystery. Yeah, how could a cat have got into these? Who broke the pickle dish? Yeah, that'd be much better. Because I'm wondering why I brought you all here today. <laughs> it doesn't turn into a whodunit because Matty can't bear to see Ethan suffer. She immediately just says, oh, it's my fault. I took the pickle dish. It was I. I am Spartacus. Yeah. Who, did he do something with a pickle dish? Yeah. Well, it's, uh, this was in the deleted scenes. They kind of changed the premise. Kubrick had a different angle. All right. It's original script sort of deal. So Xena lays into Matty. You're dreadful. You're just like your dad. My pickle dish, Ethan. You are out of control. <laughs> Civilization is collapsing. And this is a stain on your soul that you're going to have to atone for in hell. And then she kind of carries this pickle dish off like it's a dead body. After an irate Xena goes to bed... Maddie leaves Ethan a note telling him, you know, don't trouble yourself over me. And he stays up all night pacing in the kitchen, trying to figure out what can I do to, to keep us together. And Maddie stays up all night listening to Ethan pace. And it's a, it's a pretty romantic scene, actually. You know, they're separated by a wall, but they're connected in spirit. The next morning, when Ethan comes in from doing his chores, Zena's already packed Maddie up and basically has her out the door. Question for you, Daniel. Mm. This might be a reach, but I'm just going to throw it out there. We're among friends. What are the chances that Xena isn't jealous about Ethan? She's jealous about Maddie. And that's why she's sending Maddie away. Is there any way that we can make this into a queer reading? Well, that would be a right mess, wouldn't it? If both members of the couple were in love with Maddie. Or a, an or easy thruple? I don't Well, Maddie might not be into I just didn't know if, like... Maybe Zena calling Maddie a bush league tramp is just her way of flirting. Nagging. Yeah. What do you think? Does this deserve a queer reading sting? Or is that is that a step too I think far? This is the closest we would get to one in the book. 
I'm, do I'm double ticking this. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Thank you, sir. Fine. Yeah. Okay, so Maddie's being basically shoved out the door, and she's basically left Maddie to wrestle with her huge trunk all alone. Maddie has a. Oh, the. Like a suitcase. A suitcase, not not like an elephant situation. I got confused. Ethan goes to help Maddie with her big trunk, and he finds her sobbing. Oh, God, Maddie, we've been living, laughing, loving. But at what cost? Mm -hmm. At what cost? So the two of them share a tender embrace, and Ethan says, you know what, I can at least drive you to the train. So he takes Maddie on a long drive, instead of going directly to the station. And they sort of very, very super tentatively, guardedly confess their love to each other. And Ethan wonders aloud what will become of Matty in her new life. She's like, oh, I'll probably just get a job in a shop somewhere. But he's like, well, I'll probably get married before long. And I'd probably rather die than that. And she's like, well, I wish I'd die before I get married too. It starts getting dark and they come across the sledding hill. Someone has left their toboggan. Not a faded toboggan? Yeah. They should sue whoever left that toboggan. <laughs> yeah, good point. It's America. We're a litigious people. Yeah, yeah. A proud litigious people. That's really who's at fault here, whichever careless... Reckless soul. Sledder. They deserve to be sued. That would be a really... I mean... Again, we're not lawyers, but that would be a really good podcast, wouldn't it, if you... Like, what are the chances that they could win the lawsuit? Yeah, well, you just get two expert legal experts to come in and talk about potential lawsuits arising from books. Frome versus Toboggan. Sending legal experts out there who want to let us know what, what the case is here. So, anyway, Ethan sees that Toboggan. He's like, oh, I never took you sledding like I promised. Let's just, you know, let's have a quick one. Come on, why not? Let's have a quick old roll in the snow. They sled down the hill. It's very, very enjoyable. A lovely time had by all. Thank you. Um, as they walk up the hill, Matty kisses Ethan. Then they burst into tears. Ooh, oh, I love a good snog that turns into tears. That is a prime experience. When it freezes, though, and they um, can't And then you get lip-locked forever. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's like the little boy and the thing with his tongue on the flagpole. A the Christmas, most patriotic boy. A Christmas story. Oh, okay. I thought that was the most patriotic <laughs> That little boy was the most patriotic boy in America. He tongue-kissed the flag. <laughs> you don't know a Christmas story, do you? No. You'll shoot your eye out, kid? No. No, you don't know this at all. Well, that was a threat. So, yeah, the clock strikes as they cry. Matty's going to miss her train. And then they'll be... Well, they'll be in a right mess, won't they? Right pickle? That's too, too soon? Too, yeah. Sorry. So, so, Ethan's like... Well, what if we did a bit of the old uh, Thelma and Louise? Uh, say it how I wrote it. The, Ethan's like, what if we Thelma and Louised this bitch? <laughs> Let's go sledding right into the death elm, and then we won't have to live without each other. And she's like, well, that sounds like the only possible idea. <laughs> Don't it? Ethan's like, but on the condition that I get to be at the front I get to be the little spoon oh the fact that he just wants to be cuddled while going to his death kills me and so we enter endgame why have you started saying that every episode it's important it makes me want to steer you into a death elm they launch the sled down the hill it's very thrilling Ethan has a little vision of Xena doesn't he he almost steers away but then he goes back and crashes into the elm Ethan wakes up He's in, I don't need to tell you, he's in a lot of pain. Matty, she's nearby, she's groaning, she says his name. Cut to the present day. 
that's the end of the little like middle framed bit with third person narration. We're back. We're back to the first person unnamed narrator at Ethan's place 20 years later. Hey, Ethan, how's your wife doing? Still bitchy, apparently, but her health is 100% recovered. Hey. So the narrator, he sees, you know, <laughs> what, uh, is it? Well, because the narrator, he goes into the Frome household and he sees two horrible, gaunt-faced, gray-haired women who are squabbling with each other. Hard to tell apart. Hollow of cheek, face, and posterior. One of them is introduced as Mrs. Zena Frome. The other, indistinguishable, Miss Matty Silver. <gasps> I'm, like, shaken. I know, but it doesn't mean anything to the... the first person narrator because he doesn't know the story we had in the middle he didn't know any of the flashback oh, yeah. i mean i'm shaking even more now so we cut to this narrator the next day gossiping with some of the neighbors desperate to find out like what this weird living situation is why is ethan you know living with these two like harpy crones what he finds out all anyone knows is that the night of the accident Ethan and Maddie were found horrifically injured and were carried back to the house. But it's so weird. Why would, you know, gregarious, lovely Maddie and the sort of taciturn, hardworking Ethan be sledding together? Mm. And also, they're supposed to be catching a train. Very bizarre stuff. Well, Xena couldn't kick Maddie out of the house when Maddie was so close to death. And even though Maddie eventually recovered enough, she was too disabled to work and, frankly, had nowhere else to go. So finally, with something to do, Zena found the strength to get over whatever her own mysterious illnesses were. And now she's the caretaker, and Maddie, the invalid. Oh, delicious irony. <laughs> it's a happy ending, isn't it, for Zena? Well, it's a good change for Zena, horrible for Maddie. The neighbors tell the narrator, oh, Maddie had the sweetest nature before the accident, but it's done things to her. And now that she's basically living on one HP, she's as mean as Zena ever was. She and Xena fight, but it's Ethan who's the one who suffers. Oh. So the gossiping neighbor tells our narrator that if Maddie had died, Ethan might have lived. But she didn't. And now the Fromes are poorer and more miserable than ever, and there's no difference between the Fromes in the house and the Fromes buried in the cemetery. The end. Jeez, I didn't realize that this tragedy would be such a bummer. That brought a tear to my danged peepers. Okay, so for some casting. The thing is, the stakes in this story are, in actuality, really low. But they feel enormous to the characters. So what I want is Martin Scorsese to make a quiet epic about something really small. I want to see if he can do it. Well, he'd already done Edith Wharton, hadn't he? Had he? Age of Innocence. That's Scorsese. Yeah. Is that not Coppola? No. Is it? Yeah. No, I like this though. That doesn't feel right. It is by Martin Scorsese. Okay, so who am I casting in this movie? We need a tall, handsome, but exhausted looking New Englander. It's gotta be Ben Affleck, the tiredest of all tall, handsome New Englanders. Have you not seen all the memes of Ben Affleck constantly smoking oh, a yeah, cigarette? Yeah, yeah, or yeah, yeah. And now for our segment, Bad Goodreads Reviews. 
If it had any merit, it is an argument against the Odyssey. For look what gods we make when we play as authors. One star. <laughs> Your face! <laughs> I thought you might like that one. Yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> I don't even know where to start. Gatsby wannabe depressed farmer. One star. Fellas, is it Gatsby wannabe territory if you eat <laughs> nothing but gruel and use a wheat thresher and solemnly accept your poverty-stricken lot in life? Edith Wharton might be dead, but she could still catch these hands. One star. It's funny. Is this New England gothic? Well, I thought not, but... There is a, there's a whiff of that, isn't there? There's the tiniest hint of gothic about it. And I also saw somebody, I wish I could remember who it was, but they wrote once that um, New England gothic is when you hate everyone around you, but you love your jam jars, and then you go to an ill-fated maple tapping party or something like that. And I was <laughs> yeah, like, is that New stakes. England gothic? Yeah. It's wholesome or stifling. And I feel like on the one side, we're kind of almost broaching into Edgar Allan Poe, and on the other side, it's the sort of... Very mannered. Yeah, it's a comedy yeah. of manners but a tragedy yeah <laughs> it's also but I was thinking it's also just like a kind of classic realist narrative isn't it because that's aside from the Bildung's Roman the other one is the big infidelity mm-hmm. thing isn't it so you got Madame Bovary Anna Karenina he knew he was right Scarlet Letter but here it's about a bloke is it sort of a commentary on the realist tradition as well do you think yeah to some extent I mean there's way more sympathy for Ethan in this because he doesn't seem frivolous like mm, Bovary and yeah. to some extent Karenina they're bimbos aren't they yeah he doesn't even get to have sex with anybody in this I think that's the other thing is that it's it's not even quite fully no, an infidelity yeah, yeah. No, it's not yeah, like it is obviously but well yeah not to the same extent as like Karenina and Bovary <laughs> yeah they're really batting out of his league could you say there's a kind of sexist thing that he's forgiven because he's a man and they're they're just on thinner ice so to speak yeah i did wonder if that is a misogyny thing i also wondered if it was a class thing as well Mm. the fact that like again he's not under the same scrutiny as the upper classes and you know that sort of being a little bit more earthy a little bit more humble it's Mm. it's less of a height for him to fall from he doesn't have a reputation in the same way yeah but ultimately the function of all of these kinds of realist narratives, especially those about people making maybe the wrong decisions, is about exploring or trying to formally represent how an individual agency and psychology can exist within these socioeconomic limitation or scarcity or what have you. Because, I mean, Ethan is kind of trapped and this is how he responds to that entrapment. No, I, I fully buy that. I mean, there's a huge economic component to his decision making. Bovary, Karenina, and Frome are all expressions of that same function of realist novels. Yes, yeah. yeah. They're just operating in different circumstances yeah. that then inform their reactions in different ways. I fully buy that. Yeah. I wanted to talk about sympathy in this book because I was surprised when I taught this in Glasgow, a lot of people really hated this book and had no sympathy for Ethan. And their argument is, you know, oh, he's sullen, he cheats on his disabled wife with her own relative under her own roof, he downplays her chronic pain, he breaks her most beloved possession. I personally think that is a bonkers reading that the evidence of the text does not I'm pretty not surprised by that somebody would read that in this text. Because the narrator, the third person narrator, is manifestly hostile to... Zena. Yeah, and like, even assuming, I'm not even getting into like, is Zena lying about her disability? Is it an attention thing, a Munchausen thing? Like, let's assume she is actually disabled. 
being disabled and being in pain doesn't force you to be a bad person, which Xena is even before she has the chronic pain, even before Maddie arrives. Mm. I mean, she shuts down Ethan's dreams and she forces him into a life of hardship, not because she has anything going on in Starkfield or even likes it there, but just because she doesn't want to move. So abandon your dreams. Also, the fact that Xena hoards comfort and sneers at joy. Not only her pickle dish, which only she can touch, mm. nobody else can enjoy it. Oh, Maddie wore a ribbon, you know, because she wanted to be nice and, you know. Oh yeah, she's nice, still. Yeah. You know, she, she has no consideration of their financial strain and keeps buying these useless gadgets and medicines mm. that she doesn't even bother to learn how to use and won't even consult her husband before making these, frankly, ludicrous charges. She rewrites her history about how she lost her health. She insults his family. Mm. Even before Maddie arrived, she basically just stopped talking to Ethan and would just creepily stare at him and judge him. She's an asshole. Oh, yeah, no, I mean, I'm not and I guess a fan, but yeah. I thought it was a commentary on the very long shadow of Puritanism where you should be content with what you have in life, the life you're born into. It makes me furious. My cheeks flushed when I was reading He didn't have to marry her, though, did he? I mean, like... He could have known, you don't have to settle for this just because, well, it's here and it's convenient and I probably don't deserve more. This whole book is about the the resonance of Puritanism centuries after. Oh, I mean, yeah, but this is maybe just our kind of worldviews, but I'm seeing it more that the social and economic conditions of New England force that Puritan mindset to keep living rather than that it's just like a kind of cultural hangover that they don't need. But she's just bad as well though, isn't she? Because of like the whole hypochondriacal thing. Like, yeah. It is like a pathological thing for her rather than purely some kind of lack of get up and go. Do you think it's a Munchausen's thing? I, well, I assume she was hypochondriac. Because yeah, that, this was the big thing I was thinking about the book was that there's a strong sense of the culture of hypochondria in the town amongst mm. all the kind of women. and. Ethan thinks in the sort of capacity of the women of the town mm-hmm. saying like, oh, it's one of them conditions in a kind of slightly ironic way, if yeah. you know what I mean, where he kind of like ventriloquizes the collective Harridanhood. Yeah. And so I thought it was more pointing to this idea. It was like a semi-fashionable, just kind of self-absorption yeah. thing. It has a kind of funny effect on her personality, doesn't it? Because she sometimes seems completely deluded and unreasonable, but it also sort of hyper-observant because like when you're a yeah. hypochondriac, you're always kind of checking yourself, aren't you? And yeah. she, you know, there's something kind of sly and savvy about yeah, her. Sly, yeah. but also completely deluded. Like you're, yeah. you're trying to find things that aren't there. It's like any good literary critic. Yeah. You're, you're just a kind of paranoid nutter. It's a kind of neither nor mm. sort of story, isn't it? That they didn't kill themselves, but they did not kill themselves. If you know yeah. what I mean, in the same way, she isn't deluded, but she also is very much deluded. Could we talk about the frame narrative? Yes. This is such a weird framing device where you have this narrator who, even at the end of the novel, doesn't actually truly know what happened. We, as the audience, know more than the first narrator ever does. Why do that? Why put us in that position of like dramatic irony over the narrator? That's really odd. Yeah. It, it creates a joke structure that mm-hmm. we've got a sad story in the middle, but then at the end... Now, the SWAT rolls, you know, that seems like the only purpose of it. And there's something kind of cruel about that, having that joke structure to it. It's like a punchline, that final part of the frame narration. Yeah, I thought it was a lot like Wuthering Heights as well. That The narrator was a bit like a Lockwood figure, because he is oblivious, isn't he? Although A bit of a dope who doesn't really know what's happening. Yeah, he's looking in on something and he doesn't know what he can see. Has the locals telling him a, yeah, a yeah. bit what's he's going get, on? He's piecing a story together. We've also got the sort of, yeah, the menage a trois situation, a bit like Kathy and Heathcliff mm-hmm. and... Isabella, yeah, all of that. 
mess but it's like so much more repressed which yeah. is quite funny it feels like a kind of afterword to Wuthering Heights in the sense that it's completely repressed there's also all that stuff about like the the families all sharing graves and stuff that's a bit like at the end of Wuthering Heights Lockwood at the end of Wuthering Heights is like oh could Heathcliff and Cathy truly slumber in their graves meanwhile Ethan, Zena and Matty they're alive but it's like a kind of death yep. so there's, you've got these kind of they're almost like negative images of each other well is this a ghost story these undead people sort of floating through their life. This, I mean, this brings us back to whether it's gothic or a kind of conventional yeah. realist narrative, and I think the point here is that it's a kind of double vision thing where it's trying to... Wharton is like actively trying to see if you can square that circle. Yeah. Anyway, give us some advice, please. Okay, well, in this book, we didn't really talk about this in the recap, but colors and light tend to intensify around Maddie, and Xena is always in sort of like gray and brown and yellow. So it's really easy characterization to look at the colors that are associated with different characters. You can get a lot of easy, easy readings mm. out of that. It, it could go without saying, probably, but it is worth yeah. noting. Especially women. They always... Like, you know that Trollope yeah. one? Oh, boring brown Mildred, and then pink flighty Mary, or, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, for our clue to the next episode. So, Daniel, we've done a series of epics this year, and I think in our final episode of season four, I'd like to do one more epic. But listeners may wonder, is this what Daniel wants? To which I say, I don't care. If he doesn't want to do it, I'll simply make a new Daniel from my rib. Whoa, that's weird. Here's my clue. I bet some of our listeners are going to be pretty excited to have a Christmas episode, aren't they? Oh, yes, please. Wrong! Christmas is cancelled. Bloody woke mob cancelling Christmas. Yeah, but yeah, that's what we're doing. <laughs> <laughs> right, so please write into our email at savemefrommyshelf at gmail.com. Tweet us at smfms underscore podcast. We're on TikTok. We're on Instagram. We're on Patreon. If you are interested in supporting the show, seeing more videos, blooper reels, or joining our book group. And apart from that, we will see you for our final episode of season four. Kinda. We are having an end of year special after that. But we're not covering a book. (laughs) You have anything... Packing up all my stuff now. Thanks for listening to Save Me From My Shelf. Our music is The Overture to Don Giovanni by Mozart, and cover art is by Catherine Wu. Our thanks to Aston University's Centre for Critical Inquiry and to Society and Culture for funding the startup of this podcast. Contact us at savemefrommyshelf at gmail.com or at smfms underscore podcast on Twitter. And do not, I'm going to remind you, do not forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Do not forget. Thank you.